0: Welcome to AXIS, Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In New Mexico's Gila wilderness, 106 Mexican gray wolves may be some of the most monitored wildlife on the planet. Collared, microchipped, and transported by helicopter. Once a symbol of the wild, these wolves have come to illustrate the demise of wilderness in this human age. And yet the howl of an unregistered wolf, half of a rogue pair, splits the night. If you know where to look you'll find that much remains untamed. And even today, wildness can remain a touchstone for our relationship with the rest of nature. That's journalist and adventurer Jason Mark writing in his new book, Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. He says that wildness is wily as a coyote. You have to be willing to track it to understand the least thing about it. Jason Mark, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's really exciting to be here.
0: Uh, so I wonder. Uh, I understand you have your book with you, and yes, uh, I wonder if we just uh, launch right in. Uh, I wonder if you could just read the, the first five paragraphs, the, the beginning of the prologue here. You're, you're the out. first five
1: paragraphs of the book? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, me just, uh, let me just get there. So this is the prologue. It starts, um, Into the Wild. My foot was killing me. As long as I was able to step flat and keep my heel and toes level, the pain wasn't too bad. But walking, un- walking evenly was impossible in that mostly trackless wilderness. I kept losing the trail, picking it up again, blazing my own. I stumbled over river rocks, mud patches, dead falls, thickets of the branches, the natural mess made by the floods that sometimes tear through Aravipa Canyon, Arizona. Whenever my toes bent, the inch long piece of wood lodged deep between the skin and bone of my left foot stabbed into me. That really hurt. But the swelling was much worse. Overnight, my foot had bloated into something resembling an overstuffed sausage, and as I tried to make my way out of the canyon, it throbbed incessantly. I don't want to sound melodramatic about the whole thing. Yes, I was in a rough spot, miles from assistance and badly hurt, but it wasn't like that guy who got his arm trapped under a boulder and had to cut off his hand. I had told several people where I was going, the exact trailhead and my expected departure from the backcountry. It wasn't as if I were going to die. Still, I was nervous. I'd been in the canyon a few days and had seen only one pair of hikers who had been headed back out the other way. There was no one around to assist me, no one to hear a cry for help, even if I made one. I looked up at the salmon pink cliffs towering hundreds of feet above and knew, with a twist of fear, that my rescue would have to be my own. Suddenly, I felt very vulnerable. What was supposed to have been a fun adventure had turned dangerous. All of my energies had been been distilled to a single primal motive, getting out of there in one piece. I leaned on the cottonwood crutch I had made the day before and took in the stillness of the canyon, its unremitting silence. For about the 20th time that morning, I pulled the canyon map from my back pocket to see where I was. I looked upstream. I looked downstream. I measured how far I had gone, how far I still had to go. At least six miles, probably more, and every step was guaranteed to hurt like hell.
0: You've still got a, a piece of that wood in your foot, I
1: understand. I do. It's yeah. it's, it's shrunk by now. The, as I explain a little bit later in the prologue, um, by the time I got back to Phoenix, uh, which is where I was born and raised, and, and that, that episode of the little misadventure happened about I think 10 plus years ago, um, a friend's fiance who was an MD gave me an antibiotic prescription that stemmed the swelling, and by the time I got back to my home in California, the doctor said, hey, it looks to be healing And uh it's pretty dangerous to cut into the foot with all those bones. let's just leave it in there. So I still have this little this little piece of the wilderness actually embedded under my skin um, and and I carry it around with me.
0: yeah, I guess a a, a metaphor of sorts. Uh, so you're you right in the prologue. there's no bad weather there there's only bad gear choices. And
1: well, yeah I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, listeners who may be hunters or anglers, hikers or or backpackers or kayakers know that if you're going to go out into wild lands um national parks or wilderness areas or or some of our wilder blm lands, that you need to you need to you know follow first of all the boy scout model of being prepared and i think being prepared just means um being ready for all kinds of of weather, good or bad um and so in that case the poor gear decision was hiking through a again a mostly trackless wilderness wearing a pair of sandals
0: Mm -hmm. yeah uh, so, uh, understand the book, you're, you're pushing back against this idea. It's getting a little bit of traction, uh, that we're in a post-wild world, right? We're in, we're in the age of man, and just have to get used to this, you know, wild is going to be phased out. What if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I got the idea for this book, again, I, I'm a journalist and I cover the environment, and i would begun to hear, um, I guess, really over the last you know, five, six years, but even a little bit before that, this conversation that that started in in academia but then began to percolate up um, into the national media. You know, you'd hear about it on things like, you know, Science Friday on NPR or in um, some of the major national magazines and newspapers. This idea, this conversation that we now, we meaning humans, human civilizations, we're basically in charge of the planet um, with 7 billion people and our technologies spread everywhere. We've entered what some scientists are calling the Anthropocene, or the human age, right? So the Holocene was the geologic age in which human civilization was born, basically the last 12,000 years, and that perhaps it's time to, to coin a new epoch, to say that we're now in the Anthropocene. And that's led some people to say that, hey, there's nothing wild on the planet anymore. Um, wilderness, if it ever really existed, and maybe it's just a you know, a, a, a Western kind of European fiction. If wilderness ever really existed, it sure doesn't anymore. And so I wanted to go and explore whether that was really true, whether it's true that there's nothing wild that remains here in this so called human age. And so I went to some of the most remote places here in America, from, again, the Gila Wilderness of New Mexico to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge um, and places uh, across basically the American West. Um, to try to answer that question.
0: Now, are you talking about wilderness or wild or wildness? There's probably you know subtle differences between all three of those.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. I mean, I think certainly in this country we're unique in that we actually have a legal definition of wilderness, right? Established now a little over 50 years ago in the Wilderness Act of 1964 which says, you know, wilderness is a place where, where man himself is a visitor, um, a place that's untrammeled. And so I am talking about our legal definition of wilderness, but really I'm talking about wildness, which I think is, is a squirrelier idea, and one, as you said in your introduction there, takes a lot more work to hunt down. Um, because wildness doesn't just exist, of course, in our, in our designated wilderness areas, and again, Utah listeners will know that as well as anyone. There's all sorts of wild places that don't have the official wilderness dotted line around them. So it's it's more important, I think, to kind of figure out what is the wildness that remains. And, and again, as you said in your introduction, how do we hold on to wildness as a touchstone for our relationships with the rest of nature, especially if we know now in this human age that everything's been touched. You can't go anywhere on this planet and not find some sort of of the evidence of civilization. So that's true. And if, if, again, there's nothing that's really, truly, exactly pristine, then I think wildness becomes more important than ever.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the Mexican gray wolf. But, but first, uh, as you talk about in the book, you talk about the, the more famous, uh, you know, the northern wolves, the wolves in Yellowstone National Park uh and the fact that uh you know some of these wolves get used to being looked at and then that's dangerous for them uh, when they leave the park
1: yeah you know I, I i clearly in this exploration of wildness wanted to have some sort of wildlife story and, and there's so many right i mean the bison is an incredible story you know having gone down to a you know just a few hundred animals and then And then now coming back and being reintroduced in some places, you know the the comeback of the California condor, perhaps you know the, the the resurgence of of mountain lion and cougar populations, but the wolf just kept attracting me. I mean, it's this kind of you know the wolf has really become a, for some people, a totem of wildness. It's kind of the symbol of wild nature, and of course for others, others most obviously meaning ranchers and and pastoralists. Um, the wolf is is a real threat and as you said the 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 famous wolves of the northern rocky mountains um, are you know probably kind of the the best known story again in the 1990s um, the federal government and federal biologists reintroduced wolves to the northern rockies first putting them in yellowstone and they become right this this huge success this kind of media darling you know you go on Uh, National Geographic Channel, um, or the Discover Channel, and there's always these wolf documentaries, mostly about the Yellowstone wolves. And in fact, they've become this huge tourist draw there, where people love to go to the Lamar Valley there in Yellowstone and watch the wolves. What has happened, as you mentioned, is that um, as hunting wolves has resumed in some states, the wolves have gotten a little bit too accustomed to having people look at them through a spotting scope from about 200 yards away. Which again, a spotting scope and about 200 yards away is pretty comfortable range um, for somebody who wants to hunt them. And so the wolves, actually within Yellowstone, have gotten so habituated that when they leave the safe boundaries of the park, they become easier prey.
0: And that you just said a key word there: safe. uh right. are, Wild and safe—is that incompatible? I, we, I think we want a, to put a little bit of danger. That's a great question.
1: In general, in some ways, it is. I mean, I think. You know, the national park ideal, which is a fantastic ideal, you know, it's famously, you folks will remember the PBS series, it's famously America's best idea, which is actually a line from, um, not Utah native, but you know uh, Utah-influenced writer Wallace Stegner, who was the one who coined that, said that the national parks are our best idea. And they're a fantastic idea. But one of the ways I think they've not served us very well is setting up this idea of nature always is a pretty place to be looked at. And I think real wildness, and in some ways is wilderness, um, it should be a pretty place to be looked at, but it should also, if you're paying close attention, there is a little element of fear that should creep in, and that element of fear normally comes when you're in a landscape with other large predators. Mm. So bears, mountain lions, wolves. Again, I mean, the number of wolf attacks on humans are... Virtually nil. You're much more likely to be hit by lightning or hit by a car. Um, and even the number of attacks by mountain lions and bears on people are, are relatively low. Um, but there is an element of risk, and that's important to kind of remember that the world isn't always here to, to neatly fit our interests and our needs. Um, other critters have, have got interests and needs too.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll more with Jason Mark. Uh, his new book from uh, Island Press is Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. Some are now saying that uh, we need to give up the idea of wild. Uh, it is the age of man. There's no place left untouched by man or will be no place. Jason Mark's pushing back on that. He went in search of wild places in the age of man. We're asking you, what uh, what is your wild place? Have, what? Uh, tell us an experience you've had in uh, wild places searching for the wild within perhaps jason mark has some very interesting experiences we're going to talk about it uh, as we go along the program today the number is 1-800-826-1495 and our email is upraccess at gmail.com we're on twitter as well at utah public radio when we come back i want to talk about these mexican gray wolves uh, jason mark writes in the book 106 mexican gray wolves in new mexico wilderness Maybe some of the most monitored wildlife on the planet. Collared microchip transported by helicopter. And these are some iconic uh, symbols in many people's minds of wilderness. More following the break.
2: This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry.
1: State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Back in the late 90s, Philip Rosedale went to Burning Man. Just this incredible kind of creative canvas. This utopia where people were creating art, playing music, collaborating... And it gave him an idea. My gosh, if I can build a virtual world, it'll probably look something like this. And so he did create that virtual world. And one day, we all might be living there. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today we're talking with adventurer and journalist Jason Mark. His new book is Satellites in the High Country. Searching for the wild in the age of man. He says that wildness is wildly, wildly as a coyote. You have to be willing to track it to understand the least thing about it. So, Jason Mark, I want to talk about these 106 Mexican gray wolves. This is New Mexico's Gila wilderness, and uh, it's ironic. It's an icon of wildness. Yet they you say they must be, they may be some of the most monitored wildlife on the planet. We've all seen the scenes, you know, collared, micro uh, transported by a helicopter, this is to save them, right? The conservationists are in favor of this,
1: yeah, I mean, I think again we, we we were before the break, we were talking about the the wolves up in the Rockies, and those have become kind of the the all star wolves and i I stumbled upon or or picked up the thread of the wolves in the in the southwest in Arizona, New Mexico, um because it was a little bit more off the radar, and in the end I found a much more interesting story because. Of how intensely they are managed, um, and this is partially because the federal and state agencies, meaning you know here the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Arizona Department of Fish and Game, um, they're committed to reintroducing wolves on the on the landscape. Um, a, environmental and conservation groups want to see wolves on the landscape, and as I said, um, ranchers have got a lot of concerns about that, and. I think you know. Really, beyond concerns, we've got a lot of anger and opposition to it. Um, the number one cause of death for the Mexican gray wolf is illegal poaching, um, and so partially to to protect them, um, the federal and state agencies have resorted to this really heavy-handed system of management. Um, the wolves essentially live inside a giant invisible box. Uh, they don't know that, of course, but you know if they go too far. If they roam too far, um, if they eat one cow too many, they are likely to be either, you know, darted from a helicopter with a tranquilizer, perhaps returned to captivity, perhaps, um, uh, you know, reintroduced somewhere else in the in the Greater Gila Range, or in some cases, shot and killed. And so, it's such a weird story, right, Tom? Because on the one hand, you've got these wolves, and they're this emblem of wildness, and yet at the other side of the coin, Um, they are so intensely uh, monitored, tracked, and, as I said, manhandled. I mean, every week, literally every week, um, a team from either U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or Arizona Fish and Game Department spends six to eight hours flying, crisscrossing in a plane over the Arizona and New Mexico forests. Uh, you know, picking up the the radio signals from the wolf packs and plotting them um, on a chart. Uh, And that's, you know, again, sort of like the least of the management that goes on. And so it was just, it's a a wonderful little story that kind of encapsulates these contradictions about wildness today.
0: We have a caller, uh, Celia, in Moab. Celia, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment.
2: Thanks. I'm so glad that you uh, have Jason on, and I really do hope Jason's going to find his way to back a Beyond Books here in Moab, because we all really need to hear from him and hear from this book. The question you posed, however, Tom, you said, tell us where your wild spots are, and I, and my question for Jason is, would a true either wildness or wilderness enthusiast answer your question and actually reveal those spots in today's day and age? Because, you know, in Moab, we're surrounded by true wilderness and wilderness study areas and a lot of wildness but you know there's a real question even among old timers in town you know I've lived here for eight years and they're still looking at me sideways about whether they're going to tell me about a place that's one of their favorite spots and Mm. so you know it, it, it is true that there's wildness left but how much do we share it that whole promote and protect is what got us into trouble in the national parks as you know
0: yeah good 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 point Celia what do you say Jason
1: that's a great question. Um thank you so much Cecilia for that. And that's and yes, I mean in the 70s and the 80s there was a real concern about, you know, loving our wilderness areas to death or w- loving our 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 national parks to death that just simply too much use um, would erode that wild character. Um, so yes, I lo- my short answer is that I love all of my wild places equally and and um don't often divulge the, my, my favorite places. I would say, you know, I began the book talking about Aravaipa Canyon, Arizona, um, and as a native Arizonan, it is dear to my heart. It's among my favorite wild places, and I'm really glad to see that the land management agency that, that, monitor, that controls that parcel, the Bureau of Land Management, highly controls access. Um, Fifty visitors a day, that's all that's allowed in the canyon, either day hikers or backpackers, or um, I believe they allow in bow hunters, but no, um, no rifle hunters. Um, and the BLM keeps it to fifty people a day. And in some, you know, I guess if you live in Tucson or Phoenix, that's a real pain. But it's great that, that the that they're limiting access. And, and I do think in some places um, it's really important for for the federal or state agencies that that, that uh, oversee wilderness areas to to balance access with wildness and and. And, and sometimes put a cap on visitor numbers.
0: Uh, Celia, I, I do take your point. Uh, I, I, you're reminding me, I was talking with David Roberts, uh, Lost World of the Old Ones, other books, uh, and he said he regrets, uh, you know, telling, he thought he was being vague about a couple of places, but he gave enough, uh, I guess unwittingly, that now some of the places that he describes in his books are sort of trampled. yeah,
2: yeah. And you know, I mean, I I moved here from somewhere else, and so I recognize that that that's what happens. But I do think it's a it's an interesting conundrum that we have to face. I mean, I'm also really interested in Jason's take on this whole new wild idea. You know, lots has been happening down here. Uh, we've got issues around um, managing our bear and and um, and other animals, but also uh, you know invasive species of plants, uh, the tamarisk, and all the craziness that in the last few years with the release of the cameras, beetles, and, you know, do you buy in, Jason, to this whole new wild thing, and what do we do with our quote-unquote weeds and our invasive species, and let alone, you know, how we manage um, our critters who are adapting and, and living in different places because of a change in climate?
1: Well, that's a great question, Shane, and that really gets to the heart of one of the chapters of, of the book, which is titled Fall of the Wild, question and it, mark, and it gets into this issue of whether or to what degree we decide we're going to manage and intervene in wilderness areas and the great example is the the invasive tamarisk and the release of the tamarisk beetle um, in the northern rockies uh the 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 really uh, um severe die-off of the white park bo- white bark pine um, which is, has just been devastated across Idaho and Montana and now you see federal agencies you know replanting trees um, in a wilderness river in uh, Virginia, when the pH got imbalanced, they dropped tons of lime into the river to rebalance out the pH. In some ways, you know, one could say, well, those are really virtuous interventions. It's an attempt to, you know, protect a species or sustain biodiversity. Um, I think, though, in some places, and this is, I admit this is a a, a tough pill for some people to swallow. In some places, we should just say, we are going to completely keep our hands off that especially for biological or scientific reasons, right? If we want to have some sort of control, right, on the control experiment line, if we want to have some baseline of what wild nature does, um, un, you know, undirected by us, then in some places we just have to, to keep totally hands off. And that's going to be tough, especially, as you mentioned, Celia, as we see the dislocations from climate change becoming more intense and severe. And I think also, um, you know, what we think of as exotic species or invasive species, those questions are, are, are really going to um, be a lot harder as climate change accelerates and species start to move. So a species that may have been exotic um, in, you know, area X, well, suddenly that's going to be its new home because it's moving northward or it's moving up in elevation um, so all these questions are just going to get harder uh, you know as, as, as we move forward in time
0: uh, Celia uh, thanks for your call
2: oh thank you
0: great show I appreciate, appreciate that That's Celia and Moab you can uh, call as well uh, Celia called toll free 1-800-826-1495 1-800-826-1495 maybe I should tweak my question uh, tell me about your wild place not giving the directions so tell me about the experience um, because yeah I, I do take Celia's point and I've heard that from others as as well you know I've, I've found this place <laughs> I don't want it to be trampled um, and the email is upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, you can join us on Twitter as well at Utah Public Radio. I've talked to a couple of people, uh, just Mark as well about a, I don't know, somewhat related idea of second best places. Um, you know, you, you, maybe maybe you, you want to bring the whole family. And, and that's uh, what, you know off the beaten track, but not way up in the wild.
1: And that's really important. I, you know, I think for a while there was a little bit of a concern that, you know, the environmental movement in 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 wanting to promote wilderness and really deep remote wilderness, um, has sort of set aside or given less 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 praise to what what we'd call the nearby nature, right? And the nearby nature is the regional parks and preserves and the state parks and preserves, or even um, your, your urban park that, that um, isn't exactly like a manicured lawn, but is, is more or less the natural flora and fauna. And those places are so important, because that's the wild nature that most of us get to, to, to engage with most frequently. Uh, unless you're living in a very remote place, you're probably not getting into deep wilderness. I'm speaking to you um, from Oakland, California right? This is not exactly uh, cheek and jowl with wilderness, but I can get in a short hour, I can get to Point Reyes National Seashore, beautiful national park just north of San Francisco. And yes, it's, you know, it's not the deep wilderness, but it, it is a real wonderful and intimate engagement with wild nature that is perfect for families, for people of all ages. And so I think the trick is, and it's not that hard, it's like walking and chewing gum, um, is to at once, safeguard, conserve and preserve our deep wilderness areas, and at the same time foster and expand the nearby nature, which again means those state parks and preserves, those regional parks and preserves, that are going to be the places that most of us can get to say, for an after work, trail jog, or to take the kids to on the weekends.
0: If we you just joined us, we're talking with Jason Mark, adventure journalist. His book out from Island Press is Satellites in the High Country searching for the wild in the age of man i'd like to at this point uh, jump to your uh, epilogue um i believe is where i found this and you went out with outward bound uh, and i want i want to uh, read just a paragraph of these young men these are teenagers for the most part and what they what they thought of their experience tell me about outward bound first
1: sure well some listeners might have known of them outward bound's been around since the 1960s and is you know essentially uh I guess they'd call it an outdoor school, you know, taking mostly young people, they're not exclusively, but mostly young people, ages, you know, usually about 16 to 20, and either taking them mountaineering, perhaps canyoneering in southeastern parts of Utah, perhaps sailing on the Great Lakes or canoeing um, in the Boundary Waters, taking them on some either week-long or two-week-long or even three-week-long outdoor adventure, giving them some basic outdoors skills but really trying to do a lot more. I mean, Outward Bound really sees the wilderness as a crucible of character, as a place where character forming uh, occurs. And I think what's so wonderful about Outward Bound is it it goes to show that um, this love of wild places, especially in America, um, for most of our history, has not been a partisan or a political issue. I, I was, I shadowed the Colorado Outward Bound and the Executive Director of Colorado Outward Bound was very proud of the fact that prominent Colorado conservatives as well as prominent Colorado liberals are both major donors to, to his organization. And it just goes to show that, again, wild places really transcend, I think, a lot of political and partisan differences. So, yeah, I had a week shadowing a group of 17 to 21-year-old young man, uh, through the mountains of the Gore Range, outside of Vail, Colorado.
0: We do have a caller. I want to get her uh, next, but but just to follow up, and then after caller, we'll get back to what the young man said. But uh, So why are people giving? Liberals and conservatives, why are they giving? What's the ideal that they're trying to promote here? I
1: think the, I- the ideal is that when you go into a wild place, you really strip life down to its essentials, right? It's, you know... Uh, food, water, shelter, etc. and then when you are with other people, it's camaraderie. it's knowing that you have to come together in a shared endeavor and so I think through that you know wildernesses classroom they're teaching again just basic values around compassion, around teamwork, around leadership, uh, personal confidence and strength certainly things that you can learn a lot of other ways i mean i think a lot of you know football coaches would say well you know the football field teaches the same things and it does um, but the wilderness is also a unique classroom just because of really the intensity of the experience and so um it's just teaching teaching young people those those important core values
0: uh, veronica has called us from uh, Teesdale. Uh, veronica glad you called go ahead with your question or comment
3: Hi there. Um uh two things. One is um I I believe that it's crucially important that young people have experiences not necessarily in designated wilderness, but uh just even in a, you know, when I, when I was growing up, we had a fallow farm field behind our house, and that was our wilderness. You know, they, wild experiences can be had all over the place. It doesn't have to be rock and ice wilderness. But secondly, I'd like to hark back to the uh, the wolves and mention that uh, they're far more important than just symbols of the wild, but that top predators are crucially important to uh, to maintain healthy biodiversity in any ecosystem, um, they're they're far more important than than just kind of a glamorous furry cuddly <laughs> critter, but uh, they're crucial to the ecosystem.
1: That's my comment. Oh, uh, and,
0: thanks, thanks, Veronica. Appreciate that. Sure. So it, I
1: would just echo both both of the things Veronica said for sure. The, these experiences of getting into uh, an untamed place. It doesn't need to be designated wilderness, and and especially in a place like Utah, in southern Idaho, um, there are so many you know places where you can go to to have those unstructured experiences with wild nature. And Veronica is exactly right. Again, on the wolves, it's far more than just a symbol. Uh, the 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 new science from conservation biologists is is really clearly demonstrated that a top predator like a wolf has an impact and a beneficial impact on the entire ecosystem uh... and, and, and we've already seen that in yellowstone where the comeback or uh, the return of the wolves basically means that the elk can't be fat and lazy anymore they've got to actually pay attention look around and see what's happening that makes the elk browse in a different fashion that allows uh... riparian trees like aspen to come back with the return of the aspen then beaver come back Mesocarnivores, which means you know coyotes and bobcats, begin to behave differently. The entire ecosystem begins to to change, and in fact, becomes healthier. And so, the return of the wolves has this really beneficial ripple effect.
0: So let me get back to these uh, young men. You're you're an Outward Bound in Colorado, and uh, they've had they've just had an experience called their solo so they go out alone and this is part of a larger experience they go out alone for three days they take I i don't know a thousand calories is all they have for for three days mm-hmm. uh, sounds like fun i say parenthetically you know sarcastically <laughs> um but anyway uh, but you know for a young man that'd be be i guess uh, a good experience test yourself so i'm just going to read this paragraph john a hockey jock from philly said he was surprised how difficult the experience had been during his solo he said i realized how frail i was Nathan, a computer geek with a mop of ginger hair falling around his glasses, said he realized that so many of the the things he takes for granted at home, lights, heat, plumbing, are luxuries. It was enlightening, he said in a soft voice. Gave me a fresh appreciation for life, for existence, I suppose. Brandon, a dude from Plano, Texas, who had been sent on the trip by his oil executive stepfather, had felt something similar. It's like on this one planet, there are two separate worlds. It's just totally different. Being out here is like being on another planet. So I wanted to focus on that last one you go on to say that's you know you know it's kind of a shame to, to think that our own earth wild places are, are so alien and yet for a lot of us they are
1: I I'm, thank you so much Tom for reading that passage I was really struck um, by the way that Brandon uh, again just a, just a great kid and just kind of like an all-american kid you know like shortstop on his on his uh, uh, baseball team um, you know, plays also on his high school football team, um, and, and he, was, he just could not get over the fact of how different the wilderness is from the, the, the landscape that most of us are in all day, and that is to say a human-dominated landscape, right? So when you're in central Salt Lake, um, that is a, that's a landscape that's been shaped by and for humans, and that's okay, right? That's what cities do. Um, and it is so completely different from the wilderness or from wild lands in which we're saying our, our intention, our will is not going to dominate here. And the hard thing, I think, for people today, and especially for young people, is bridging those two things, right? Most of us, most Americans, I think it's fair to say we spend almost all of our time in the anthill we call civilization, Right. And we might have heard that there's a forest outside the anthill, but we rarely ever go there. Uh, maybe we're lucky and we see some YouTube video of the place. And so the trick is how do we take that forest that's outside, the, the, the wild lands that are, that are all around, and how do we somehow bring that back and hold on to that in our daily 9 to 5 grind? monday through friday um and that's that i think is the real trick about wildness in in the in the human age um knowing that we're not all going to go back to the land you know there's just not enough land and there's there's too many people and in some ways um you know we really do have to find ways of of living a little lighter on this planet and that probably means you know for many of us living Living in cities, as much as I, uh, as much as I envy, you know, Celia's life out there in Moab. Um, you know, if we all lived in Moab, it wouldn't be Moab anymore. And so that's the really hard, hard thing. Tom is kind of understand that. Yes, there are there are kind of two different planets on this one globe. Um, and how do we build those connections between the wild and between the cities, the suburbs, and the farms where most of us live?
0: Uh, so, yeah, let me re- return that question to you. How do we do that? I think, you know, some people will have no interest. You know, so there's, there's one subset. But, but for those who are concerned about this, what, how, do, how do you build, build that bridge?
1: I think by going and being a mindful visitor. Um, and, again, a visitor doesn't mean you're just going and looking and watching. It could mean that you're going fishing. You're going hunting. You're engaging in some other way. Um, it's going and in, in making what essentially do become pilgrimages right? To these, I think it's fair to say, sacred places. Sacred just means a place that we've set aside and set apart. And I think that's what national parks and wilderness areas provide to us today. They really are sacred places, some place that we've we've set aside. And I think by going there, you, you can bring that home with you. You can carry that inspiration with you just as, as you do when you go to any other sacred place or sanctuary. Um, you still carry... You still carry that with you, um, and it and it guides your actions. And you remember, you know, it's, some of the outward bound kids were later saying it, it appears later in that chapter that the experience of being in the wilderness just gave them a new appreciation um, for keeping the keeping the wilderness wild, right? Like you don't want to go and you don't want to leave your trash there. You don't want to leave your toilet paper there. Um, and I think you bring that ethic back with you. I think that's what the wilderness teaches us. It's, it, it encourages an ethic of forbearance and restraint. And again, those I think are also universal values, recognizing that you can't just do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, and that as much as that's true for us as individuals, it's also true for us as a human society. And, and that's, the, that's the kind of generosity of spirit that says, we're going to set this land aside, and it's going to be a home for other critters. Um, it's not primarily going to be our home.
0: We're talking with Jason Mark. It's time for us to take another break. Uh, we'll come back with our last segment, Jason Mark. Uh, he is uh, His new book's out from Island Press. It's called Satellites in the High Country. In our last segment, I'll, I'll ask Jason Mark what it, what... What's the satellite in, in the title there? Uh, the subtitle is Searching for Wild in the Age of Man. It's pushing pushing back against an idea which is gaining some traction that in this age of man, uh, perhaps we just have to get used to the fact there will be no wild places left. Jason Mark set out in search of wild places. He says wilderness wildness is wily as a coyote. You have to be willing to track it to understand the least thing about it. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, nature deficit disorder, about how to get young people out to in, into the wilderness. And uh, some people are saying if if there's if the new generation doesn't get out and appreciate wild places, there won't be advocates left for it. And I want to talk also about a woman named Lynx. It's a fascinating chapter. Um, and uh, her organization or or a project called the Stone Age Living Project. It's back to kind of this wildness within. More following the break.
2: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. More than half a million people died in the 900-day Nazi siege of Leningrad. A new book describes how one of Russia's greatest composers gave hope to those who survived.
4: Here, though, was them cast as the hero. Here they are cast in a role as
1: being those who shall triumph one day. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments,
0: a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about wild Wilderness, The Wild Within. The book is Satellites in the High Country Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. My guest is uh, the author, journalist, and adventurer, Jason Mark. You're welcome to join the conversation. We have another 10 or 15 minutes left. 1 800 826 1495 is the toll free number. I want to know about your experience in the wilderness. What do you think? 1 800 826 1495 or upraccess at gmail.com is our email, upraccess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. So I mentioned this uh, nature deficit disorder. is a a phrase uh, coined by uh, journalist uh, Richard Louvre, and you talked, Jason Mark, with uh, a Moab-based journalist, Christopher Ketchum. This is what he said, I find that almost no one I know who's 40 or younger goes backpacking. That's pretty startling
1: it is, and for a 40-year-old backpacker um, like me, it's it's sad, truly. Um, and I think nature deficit disorder is, is a real and serious issue, as is, is Richard Lee pointed out in his book, Last Child in the Woods. Well, I think one way to address it is through programs like Outward Bound. Outward Bound's expensive, and, and even though you know the trip I was on, 40% of the, the, the kids were on scholarship, it's still a pretty small segment of of people who can go and do that. Um, But then there's all the really great programs that are run, again, by national parks or by state and local parks, just doing whatever they can to get kids outside. And I think, um, you know, they're, they're hugely successful. There's a group here in Northern California called Bay Area Wilderness Training. gives training to teachers and other youth educators so that they then feel comfortable, say, going out to parks and then taking their students with them. But the political challenge is real. That yes, if there's you, people are not going to fight to protect what they don't know and love, and if they haven't been out in national parks or wild areas, they're just not going to be interested in it. And so the the real concern is is that we are losing a constituency of backcountry enthusiasts. Um, but I would say I'm cautiously optimistic when I look around and I see all of. The different programs that have sprouted up across the country to respond to nature deficit disorder, and you know, I talked for the book. I, I talked to um, uh, National Park Service Director John Jarvis, um, really great guy, a, a career, uh, a career ranger within the National Park Service, and I can tell you that you know certainly his agency is doing everything they can to engage kids in the parks, including you know running programs for for kids from inner city Los Angeles and getting them out to Death Valley. And the kids get out there, and they are shocked. They are walloped um, to see the night sky for the first time in their life. Um, and so those little excursions can have a huge, I think, life-transforming uh, effect on people.
0: I want to talk about uh, Lynx Vilden. Uh, <laughs> this is an interesting experience. I yeah. wonder, if you have your book with you, I wonder if you could read the first couple of paragraphs uh, in, your, in, in that chapter, Chapter 7. Back I, the I
1: can, yeah. This is, this is probably best to read because it's, um, it's an incredible story. Uh, Here we go. This is Chapter 7, Back to the Stone Age. The first time I saw Lynx Vilden, I thought I had slipped into George R.R. Martin's A Game of Thrones saga, and had found myself north of the Wall, in the land of the Wildlings. This was a few years back, August 2012, and my partner Nell and I were backpacking on the eastern side of Washington's Cascade Mountains, among the so-called Golden Lakes of the Sawtooth Ridge. During the previous two days, we had encountered only one other person, a motorbiker who startled us one morning as he tore through the trails of the national forest. Besides that, the place was ours. So it was a surprise that evening when, as we played cars near the edge of the Sunrise Lake, Nell grabbed my arm, hissed, look over there, and pointed to a lone figure moving along the lake shore. In the dusk light, it was hard to tell whether it was a man or a woman. The get-up didn't help. The person was clothed all in buckskin. Buckskin breeches and a buckskin jacket with a fur-trimmed hood pulled over the head. A long, thin knife and a leather sheath hung off a leather belt. A fishing pole was in his or her right hand. The figure moved quickly and stealthily to the trees, and then it was gone, disappeared in the shadows. Around the fire that night, Nell and I played the scene over and over. Who could it be? Were there other deer skinned strangers out there in the woods? But we saw no other signs of people. No campfire in the distance. No voices in the dark
0: and so you and as
1: i then later explained we had stumbled across something called there were in fact other deer strangers in the woods a whole clan of them in fact and we had stumbled across something called the stone age living project and the the figure in the woods we later discovered was a woman named Lynx vilden who so is quite a character she's a uh, london born uh woman who's been living here in the states now i think for you know 25 years at least 20 years or so, and has become one of the world's foremost experts on Paleolithic technologies, right, basically Stone Age technologies. And she runs this thing every year, the Stone Age Living Project, where she and a small group of people go into some remote uh, area, usually in, in eastern Washington or in Idaho, and see how long they can survive with only Stone Age technologies.
0: Interesting. Uh, so there are, you know, there, there are people like this out, you know, out there who, for whatever reason, and in this case they they, they want to go, I guess, back in time and test themselves. But people who really, really, really need this experience and then remove themselves and they're and they're out there. I wonder if you could connect that up with, you know, people who are more comfortable in civilization, but. Still need
1: sure. I think it's I mean, I think what Lynx and and, and her, you know, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of fellow travelers are doing. What they're doing is very interesting, I think. And and I sort of approach this as one of the, I think, the second to last chapter of the book. It's if the wolves are a case of rewilding, right? Lynx and and her Stone Age living folks are human rewilding. See, trying to see if we can go back to a more primal way of living, and if so, what that would look like. And yes, I mean, they're an extreme example, but I think a lot of people clearly have that same sort of desire to explore what we may have lost as we've become more civilized. I I think for evidence of that, you don't have to go any farther than cable TV, right, where there's just this huge raft of... Reality shows, um, you know, set in Alaska, you know, Alaska survival shows, um, or, you know, there's even a show called Fat Guy in the Woods, you know, putting people in these, or, you know, naked and afraid. Um, and, And I think all of those survival shows, they can, you know, it's easy to maybe smirk at them, but at some level they're tapping in to people's feelings or their uneasiness that as we've become more civilized we've lost some important, Essence of, of human nature, and so I think what Lynx and folks are doing is as much as it is, as you say, um, kind of extreme. There's a lot of people who uh, you know would love, even if it's from the the comfort of their sofa, to watch what she's doing. There's a lot of curiosity about this kind of uh, underground Paleolithic subculture.
0: We just have uh, less than a minute uh, left. I wanted to uh, have you talk very briefly about the satellites, the satellite in your in your title
1: sure I think maybe in just this last minute I'll just read you that last section and excellent it'll come through I think this again was from when I was backpacking in the gore range uh, with the with the young men from outward bound and after a, a rainstorm I look up at the sky my god the stars countless bursts of incandescence gems flung across a carpet of black velvet the Milky Way like a veil of silver mist I tried to pick out the Greek names for the timeless arrangements the bears, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the plowman and Virgo, the Virgin. From a moment ago, we've been hitching our myths onto wild nature. Then a star on the move caught my eye. It traced an exact arc across the sky, something out of sync with the stillness. A satellite. Beauty interrupted by the traffic of a million conversations. I took a breath. Once more, I wondered at the way in which Earth, even marred, remains a perfect mystery. And that's the end of the book, Tom, and that's, you know, I know the end of our segment here today, but the point is that even if we've got our fingerprints everywhere on the planet, there's still a lot of wild mystery out there, and I hope your listeners go out there and explore it.
0: That's a great way to end it. Uh, Jason Mark has been my guest. Satellites in the High Country is the book. Uh, Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it.
0: Coming up tomorrow, I'll be talking with the distinguished scholar of American Indians, uh, Peter Nabokov, His new book recounts the uh, interesting and uh, tragic story of Edward Proctor Hunt. That's tomorrow on the program. Hope you join us then.
4: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. If you have ever explored the mountains of Utah, you've inevitably heard the iconic high-pitched chirp associated with Utah's yellow-bellied marmot, sporting chubby cheeks, large front teeth, a reddish-brown tail that spins like a helicopter rotor when fleeing, a grayish-brown back, white patch of fur between the eyes, and a yellow-orange belly. These sun-loving, flower-chewing mammals exude a Buddhist-type nature, especially when compared to their frantic neighbors, the pica. Yellow-bellied marmots belong to the mammalian order Rodentia in the squirrel family Siuridae. This family includes all species of prairie dog, chipmunk, and the woodchuck. Marmots fall under the genus Marmota, the scientific name of yellow-bellied marmots is Marmota flaviventris. Although the origin of the term marmota is not certain, one accepted interpretation stems from the similar Latin word meaning mountain mouse. Flavaventris means yellow-belly in Latin. There are 15 species of marmot worldwide, all in the northern hemisphere. Most live in the mountainous areas such as the alpine marmot found only in Europe, though some live in rough grasslands. Although commonly believed to be in the same genus, the prairie dog is not classified in the genus Marmota, but in the related genus Cynomys. When alarmed, yellow-bellied marmots emit a shrill whistle, which earned them the nickname whistle pigs by early settlers. Sometimes they make a chucking sound, which could explain another nickname, rock chuck. Yellow-bellied marmots live at average elevations of 6,000 to 13,000 feet throughout western North America. They are often found in highland meadows and steppes and almost always near rocks. Burrows are usually constructed in areas with plentiful plants which comprise the marmot's main diet, herbaceous grasses and forbs, flowers, legumes, grains, fruits, and insects. Marmots spend the summer months sunning on warm rocks and fattening up in preparation for winter hibernation, which can last up to eight months. Thus, they are especially plump in the fall, right before hibernation, and reach weights of around eight to 11 pounds. They may also estivate in June in response to dry conditions and lack of green vegetation, only to reappear later in the summer when food is once again plentiful. The type of social structure of yellow-bellied marmots includes a single male with a range of one to four females. Males are territorial and aggressively protect their harem from other male marmots and small predators, such as ermine. Other predators to the yellow-bellied marmot include coyotes, foxes, badgers, bears, and eagles. Females raise their annual offspring of three to eight jointly with other females within the harem. Baby marmots or pups are born relatively undeveloped and require large amounts of care until they emerge from the nest three weeks later. Only about half of marmot pups survive to become yearlings. If they make it through the first year, marmots may live up to 15 years of age. Given that they spend about 80% of their life in a burrow, 60% of which is in hibernation, Consider yourself lucky the next time you encounter a chubby, sunbathing, whistling marmot. For Utah State University Extension Sustainability, this is Rosalind Brain. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
0: This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, hd one Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.